0: I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. It's page 846 in one of these Bibles from the pew. Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is the account of Jesus' conversation with a, uh, a young man. Uh, we learn from the three accounts in three of the Gospels uh, that tell this, that he is rich and he is young and, and he is man with authority. He is a ruler over other people. Now hear God's word beginning in Mark 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and and mother. Then he said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me, disheartened by the saying Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Here we have a life-altering conversation. Have you ever had a life-altering conversation? We one that you were not expecting I did, right out of the college. I had lunch with a man who was an officer in the church where I was in South Florida. He was a well-known counselor at the time and author of books. We went to eat a Red Lobster on Highway 1 in Boca Raton. We're eating lunch, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm laying out before him a number of issues as to whether to attend seminary or not, if to go where, other options. And he just sat and listened as if we were eating. And then he just looked at me and he said, Chip, you've made your decision. You just haven't faced it. And he was right. There were, he was right. He knew I was going to, what I was going to do, and I knew I was going to do. I just hadn't faced the decision. To a certain degree, that redirected where I was going. This is a life-altering conversation with, with much more... Uh, power and significance than what I just referenced. This man had everything that the world had to offer in the present, so his concern when he comes to Jesus is not with the present. He's he's got the present wrapped up. His concern is the next life, uh, inheriting eternal life. So let's just look briefly at this encounter with with this man. He asked what he needs to do to secure his future. Uh, he owned much property. We know from, I mentioned the, the other Gospels, Matthew says he was a, he had great wealth. Uh, Luke says that he was a ruler. And so he, in our modern way of looking at it, is a young man who, who had everything. He, he might even be on the cover of one of our national magazines. He had freedom, he had independence, he had wealth, he had a certain degree of authority. And so when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't really sense any need for right now. He's not asking financial advice from Jesus. He's not asking how to have a happy life. Uh, He he seems to be on top of everything. He's asking about the future. He's a planner and he's planning for the future. So his question in verse 17 is a simple one. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not a casual encounter. Uh, This man treats Jesus with respect. He's not trying to trick Jesus like some of the other questions that come to him in the Gospels. Uh, This is a man used to doing the right things. He apparently has a religion of works and obedience to rules and regulations. That's his uh, theological and philosophical approach to life. And his concern is that he might leave something out. He wants to know that they're all checked off. And uh, Jesus responds indirectly, Why do you call me good? Only God was good. That's a word reserved for him. No human is good in that sense of the word. And so Jesus was not denying that he was God. Rather, he was affirming it. He essentially is asking the young man, Do you know who you're speaking with? Do you, are you saying that I'm God by saying good teacher? He comes back to that later. So Jesus begins to answer his question with the commandments in verse nineteen, and he uh, he takes the ten commandments which we read earlier, and you know there are two tables of the ten commandments. You have the first four commandments called the first table of the law. You have the last six, the second table of the law. And which table does he deal with? Speak to me. The first four or the last six? The last six. He leaves the first four out. And what you learn about Jesus and people in general is often not what they say, it's what they don't say that has the most meaning. And it becomes clear why he leaves out the first four, but he, he focuses on the last six. Is Jesus suggesting here that the way of salvation is through works and keeping the law? Doesn't the whole entire New Testament tell us it's, it's by grace through faith? that Christ had to come and die as a sacrificial lamb on behalf of others because we cannot save ourselves through our works. Is all this now coming undone? Is Jesus saying that the way to God is through obedience to the commandments? Yes. Yes. That is what he is saying. If you can obey the commandments perfectly, 100%, you may enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, had he truly kept these? He thinks he has. Well, externally, he probably was a very moral person. He probably had uh, not violated those commandments outwardly. But internally, no, he had not kept them, just like you and I have not kept them. We cannot be saved by keeping the law because we cannot keep the law. As we've mentioned before, the law is a mirror, and it shows us how dirty we are. It shows us our condition, but it can do nothing to make us clean. It's like an x-ray that that shows you the condition. It shows you the the broken bone, uh, but it can do nothing to heal the broken bone. It reveals the problem. And so this young man, this young ruler, did not see himself as a condemned sinner before holy God. So his view of the law, though he thought it was high, it was really superficial. He only saw it from the surface. He did not see himself as a man condemned by the law. And so he used it to measure his obedience by his outward actions, his external actions, not not his heart, not his thoughts. And Jesus' point to the man is he cannot obey the commandments any more than you and I can obey the commandments. He thinks he can In fact, he thinks he already has because he says, all of these I've kept from my youth up. You and I can be like that. I know of a a man who was in business, and I heard him tell how when he was uh, sick, he had, I think he had some kind of procedure in the hospital, and he was going to recover. It wasn't life-threatening, and a pastor whom he never met before came to visit him. And he thought it would be a quick visit. The man might read Psalm 23 and have a quick prayer and leave. But apparently this pastor knew a whole lot about this fellow from his family that was praying for him and knew he was not a believer in Christ, and so he began to talk to him. And what did he do? He went right to God's law. He said, so how do you think we're made right with God? And, and the man said, well, by being, I do good. I, I, I've tried my best. I, I, you know, I've tried to do everything that's right. And he said, well, that's good. He said, do you, you ever have any?" You ever committed murder? <laughs> no, I haven't committed murder. And so I read to him from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you know, if you can commit murder in your heart with your attitude toward other people. He said, you ever had those attitudes? And he said, yeah, I have. He said, well, you've committed murder. He said, you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. Well, let me read you this from the Sermon on the Mount. and read to him about, you know, having lust in your heart, committing adultery in your heart. The man, when I heard him retell this later, he said, suddenly I didn't see myself like I did earlier. And he just went down the list, and then he said, do you think you violated any of these things? He said, yeah, I guess I have. And he said, well, the, over here in the New Testament says if you keep the law in every point and you fail in one, you're guilty of all. What happened? This, this pastor, by God's Spirit, brought the law to bear on this man's life, and that's the intention of it. And that's, that's what has not happened in this young man's life here. He, he feels good about himself. I know of a pastor who not long ago was at a graveside funeral in another state and he heard right after the man was right after the service there there at the graveside he heard someone say about the deceased he did his best what more can we do he did his best speaking of the man who had died what more can he do well listen this young man's best would not do My best will not do. Your best will not do. This man's obedience, however far it went, was not far enough because he had no idea how sinful he was. He had no idea of the sinfulness of his own heart, and so he had no idea of the holiness of God. Those two go together. And so what is Jesus addressing here? If you and I want eternal life, we must first deal with the problem, and the problem is sin. As Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we come to verse twenty one. So Jesus speaks to him, he says, Okay, you know, after he says, All these I've kept from my youth up, he says, Go and sell, give to the poor, follow me. He knows the man's heart. He knows the man's motivations. And he loves him. He has love for him. That's a very interesting comment right there about Christ has compassion on this fellow. And the man thinks he's kept all the commandments. But in one stroke, Jesus exposes how superficial he is in his understanding of the law. He hasn't kept all the commandments. Why? Because he hasn't kept the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The very first commandment, Jesus had intentionally left that out because that is where the issue is, with him and with us. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to secure the future? Sell it all, give it to the poor, follow me. And the sad part of this is the sad reaction. The man understands what is being said. And it says he just his face drops is the literal, is the literal reading. His face drops, and he walks away. And it says, for he was a man who owned much. So Jesus puts his finger right on the man's problem area in his life. He tells him to go and sell and to follow him. So his morality only covered up a covetous heart and an idolatrous heart. Then Jesus says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we must press on. The best is yet to come. Verse 24, the disciples are amazed. They cannot believe it. They cannot believe, they can believe the conversation. What they can't believe is Jesus' comment about how hard it would be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would they respond that way? They would respond that way for the same reason we respond that way today when we're really, really honest. Who does God love? Don't give me the answer you hear in church. If you were to just look around and ask, in general, if there's a God, who does he love? Well, I know who he loves, those who are healthy and those who have a lot, and those who, you know, life seems to go well for them, those who are successful. We don't talk that way in church, but I can almost guarantee you we think that way. That's why we're surprised when someone suffers. Well, I thought God loved him. And now he's got pain in his life. What's up with that? So we, we think that way. The disciples definitely thought that way. Because in the same way they had asked about the, you know, the, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, said he was born blind, the thinking was if you're, if you're sick or you're impaired in some way, you're in hot water with God. Well, if you're impoverished, it was obvious God loves the wealthy. And if you're poor, well, maybe he's not, too, he's not too hot about you. But if you're wealthy, he, yeah, man, you're, you know, you've got the blessing of God. So they're, they're amazed. Riches were a sign of God's favor. So God likes them, and therefore they're obviously going to heaven. And so Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I spent a lot of time researching that statement because through the years I've heard people come up and say, you know what he's talking about there is that architectural gate, you know, and the camel. The camel can't go down through it. The more I researched, I found that is not true. It is the eye of a needle, like you, a needle like you would sew with. And that regardless... Regardless, he is talking about an impossibility. And he says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So this young man cannot meet the standard. But then he goes on and says, No one can meet the standard. The disciples are awestruck. They're exceedingly astonished, it says in verse 26. Then who can be saved? Now it's not just the wealthy, it's in general. Who? Who can be saved? And Christ says in verse 27: With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What is he saying? Salvation is humanly impossible both for the rich and the poor, for all of us, because none of us can keep the law. But it is possible with God. A few observations. First, the futility of good works. It doesn't matter how much you give or attend church or sing in a choir. There, as far as making you right with God, it is a standard you cannot meet. And I realize, and I I read, I read, and I watch, and I look at our culture and... With children and grandchildren, I try to constantly see what young people and their views of church and why many, many have left and, and the, once they hit college and almost never come back. One reason is there's still in North American churches a philosophy and even a theology of just try harder, try harder. And you're told over and over, here, I've just got to do this, and I've got to do this, and it's like the bar is continually raised, and whatever I do, it will not be enough. Just get your act together. Uh, do, do something to merit God's favor. But you cannot do enough. No one can. Did you watch the news this past week about 64-year-old, 64-year-old Diana Nyad and swimming the 90 miles from Havana to Key West? without the help of a shark cage, 53 hours, <laughs> 53 hours to make that swim. Could you do that? Richard, could you do that? Chris, could you? No, I couldn't. Hunter, I know you couldn't do that. I, I couldn't do that either. None of us here, I assume, unless you're a, some kind of world-class athlete and hadn't told the rest of us that we couldn't do it. It's a standard we cannot meet. We could bring one of those little children that went out to the children's church, get, pick a three- or four-year-old, and have an adult basketball goal and hand them an adult-sized basketball and so say, make that, make that basket. They can't do it. It would be impossible. It would be impossible for that little one to do that. And so this is a standard we cannot meet. Perfection. Jesus says, you know the commandments, have you kept them? The standard to meet God is perfection. No, we can't do it. But there's somebody who has. Let's look on. The danger of riches in verse 23. Wealth can be a handicap. How difficult it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This is just more the same. The New Testament gives many warnings about that. In Matthew chapter 6, you know, do not store up treasures on earth. What's the problem with wealth? It gives a false sense of security. That's it. It's not just that it gives a sense of security, it is a false sense of security. It's the thinking that if I've got the present wrapped up, if I've got enough for now, that somehow or another I'm ready for the next life. That is a false sense of security. You are deceiving yourself at that point. But the danger shown here with this young man is the danger of what wealth can do to the soul. And that is it's easy for us to become attached to material riches that we forget what is more important. And so wealth naturally works at distorting our values. And be careful, parents. There are many of you that want your children to be wealthy. And I would assume. Or your grandchildren. And yet... Do you take seriously some of the warnings Christ gives? And the warnings are, are we're all susceptible to them. False sense of security. of uh, Making that more important than what is ultimately important. When Jesus tells him to sell and follow him, is that true for all of us? Should we all go out when the banks open tomorrow, liquidate everything we have, give it to the poor? No. We never assume a doctor gives the same prescription to every patient. It may be a different prescription for you. He asked every person to die for him. To divest ourselves of everything is not even logical. I mean, if we all did that, who would help the poor? But the Bible teaches whatever stands between us and God must go. It must go. For some, it may be a relationship. It might be that boyfriend or girlfriend that has to go. It might be that job. It may be that compromising business practice because it stands between you and God. Whatever, it it could be a thousand things. Look at verse 29. Whatever you leave, you will receive a hundred times over in the age to come eternal life. Jesus assumes that following him will involve sacrifice. (laughs) That just goes with being his follower. But what we struggle with here is this promise of rewards. Many of you here are making sacrifices in your service to Christ. And some is known to others, but most of it is not. No one else knows about it, and no one ever will know about it in this life. Sometimes we read and hear about people who make great sacrifices in their service to Christ, people who give up their freedom to serve Christ, people who divest themselves of everything to give away, just like Jesus was instructing this young man, people who are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, people who give sacrificially in all kinds of tangible ways. But most sacrifices I think believers make are silent. They are hidden. Sacrifices in the heart Hope long cherished that are laid on the altar of Christ's love. Sins and temptations you and I battle with long into the night and into the next day nobody knows about. The sacrifice of cheerful submission to the Lord amidst difficult circumstances that puzzle you. Struggles about which no one else will know. Your labor of serving the Lord when others have given up or quit. The raising of children, according to the vows we heard Stephen and Jenna take earlier. You deny promotion because it will take you away from your family. You're enduring abuse from co-workers or family members. And you may feel alone and wonder if it's worth it. And Jesus is saying here, God sees it all. He sees every bit of it. The service of an invalid spouse or children or parents. Whatever it may be, the prayer that you make on behalf of God's servants or this church, that no one else is there to pat you on the back, you sacrifice your time to do that, you sacrifice your ease to do that, and God sees it, and Jesus is saying, God will be no one's debtor. He will make it up many times over. I wish I had more time. I don't, so I'm going to be real fast here. There is confusion at this point. Where are the tangible blessings? Because look at the passage. When does Jesus say to the disciples, you will receive those hundredfold over? Somebody speak to me. Do you see it? In the next life? No, he says, in this life. Now that, is, that can be confusing. And I have to appeal to the words of older believers that have walked with Christ for a lifetime to try to understand this. Rob Rayburn described it this way. If you ask serious, experienced Christians about this, you will hear the same thing. They will tell you that they know very well that the Lord has returned an overabundance of the most marvelous things because they trust in him. Here is how God has abundantly provided To know God himself, the living God, the Almighty. To know him, for him to call you by name and to make you his child. To have him as your father in heaven. To have his word to guide your steps through this dark world. To have the Holy Spirit accompany you every step of the way through the veil of tears. To know the fellowship of the saints. To know the joy of salvation. To be assured of the forgiveness of your sins. To have the satisfaction of living for the highest conceivable purposes To be able to face death without fear, to know that God is pledged to your children as he is to yourself. I say these are blessings to which a hundred actual fields and houses are just a lot of trouble. But do you see the issue, the problem? If you just interpret this with, hey, if I give up this, he promises not a hundred percent, a hundredfold. A hundred times what I've given up. I like Jesus' math. (laughs) One house gone, but a hundred doors open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the Spirit gained. So whatever you lose for Christ in this life will be lavishly resupplied by Christ. So what is the Lord Jesus saying to us in this passage this morning? He's saying, you will never give up enough for me. You will never come close to giving up enough for me so that I will be in your debt. I will always repay beyond what you invest. I will do it in this world, and I will do it in the next. So how do you secure your future? Plagiarism. Y'all know about plagiarism. Some of, I look, some of you know about plagiarism. You're looking at me, yeah, preachers. They, you can cut and paste pretty easily these days. You know what plagiarism is? It's when you turn in somebody else's work and you get credit for it yourself. And that's what the Bible says to do. But it's called faith. It's not about my striving. It's not about your working. It's not about you trying to keep the commandments. It's about the righteousness which Christ produces. The work that he accomplished. And then he gives it to me and to you through faith in him. And so his record of righteousness becomes my record. So do you want to secure your future? Trust in the work done by another. Jesus, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, pray for clarity to know our own hearts.